I mentioned when we were praying together just a few moments ago, the General Assembly of our Presbyterian Church, which happens later on this week, really over three main days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And while we recognize the importance of that event, we probably also have to acknowledge today that for most people walking past that building, assembly buildings in Belfast, while those sessions are going on, they will be totally unaware of what is taking place in that building. That even though there are important and, and big decisions being taken, that maybe even for rank-and-file Presbyterians, there is little awareness of what will be happening. Today, we read together from Acts 15 about a very important meeting of Christian leaders in Jerusalem. And the impact of this meeting and the decisions that were taken at that meeting are felt and known by us today. I cannot begin to emphasize just how important a chapter of Scripture this is, how significant a gathering of Christians this was. Because whatever the specifics of what was being discussed at that special assembly, the central question that they were considering is this, who is the good news for? Who is it that can respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is it that can find salvation in the Lord Jesus? And that continues to be a big question for us to grapple with and to face up to today. We realize that if the wrong decision had been taken at this special assembly, at this council, then quite possibly we would have not been gathered here today. The gospel would have never come this far and reached this part of the world. And it's so important that as we consider what happened at this council today, that we realize that this council was not deciding who the good news was for because that decision had already been made. That was God's decision. Because in sending His Son Jesus into the world, God was offering the possibility of salvation to all people who would believe in Him. So it's not that this council was deciding who the gospel was for. It was more about the church coming to understand what God was doing in the world so that the church would not stand in the way of God and His plan and His power. And for us to understand the importance of this council, well, we need to look a little bit at the, the background of this get-together. And you know that in these recent weeks, we have been looking once again at the book of Acts. It's been described or called by Kevin DeYoung, the continuing work of Jesus, so that even though the Lord Jesus at this point had ascended and returned to be with His Father in heaven, He was still very much at work in His church by the Holy Spirit that He had promised His disciples. And recently, we have started to look at the middle part of this book. We have been looking from chapter 13 onwards, and we see the action shifting away from Jerusalem 
to a place called Antioch, and we heard about Antioch in that chapter as well. We see the gospel spreading to new parts of the world, and now we see Gentiles believing in Jesus and being saved and receiving the Holy Spirit. So that over this time, it was becoming abundantly clear to those who were the followers of Jesus that people from all kinds of backgrounds were coming to put their trust in Jesus and were finding salvation in Him. That was the discovery that one of the disciples, Peter, made back in Acts chapter 10. If you just look back at that chapter for a few moments, because there we see that Peter's eyes were opened to this truth of God saving people from all kinds of backgrounds. He made this discovery through a vision that he had, and in that vision, he was challenged by God about the way in which he looked at particular people and regarded them as being unclean and beyond God's love. And here's the big challenge that God brings to Peter back in Acts 10 verse 15. He says to him, Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And later on in the chapter, all of this is confirmed for Peter from his own experience because he meets with a man called Cornelius who is a Gentile, and he's amazed that Cornelius and his family believe the good news about Jesus and that the Holy Spirit falls upon them. So that this is what Peter concludes in that chapter in verses 34 and 35. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. And then in recent weeks, we have been reading together about Paul and Barnabas and the journey that they took reaching out to people from all kinds of backgrounds with the gospel. And again, they see the Spirit of God moving amongst the Gentiles. Now, we're going to skip past chapter 14, but you could read that chapter for yourself later on. It would be a good thing to do. And you'll see that within chapter 14, the pattern that we've been able to see so far is repeated. The gospel is brought to a new place, and some people believe and they receive the Holy Spirit. Other people reject the gospel, and they begin to work against those who are bringing the gospel to that place. But right at the end of chapter 14, if you just look back at that chapter for a few moments, and right at the end of their missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas were able to return to their home church in Antioch and report about the amazing things that God was doing. So it's a bit like when our young people or some of our people go away in the summertime and they go on mission teams and then we want to hear from them when they get back and they say, it was amazing to see what God was doing in that part of the world. And Luke describes what happens when they return to the church in Antioch in chapter 14, verse 27, that on arriving there, Paul and Barnabas gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It's a brilliant description of God at work. He had opened 
the door of faith to these people. And that all sounds really good. This is good news about the good news. We would love this in Connor if people from all kinds of backgrounds were coming to put their trust in Jesus. If we saw the Holy Spirit moving in this way, we'd be ecstatic. So what could possibly be the problem? How did any kind of dispute arise in the middle of all of this good stuff happening? Well, as we turn to chapter 15, right at the start of that chapter, we get to see the source of the problem. Look at what Luke tells us in verse 1. He says that some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And it was this message, it was this confusing message that these men were bringing to Gentile believers that was causing such a great problem. And it's so important that we understand why this message was a great problem and why it was totally wrong and why it led to this meeting taking place here in Jerusalem in chapter 15. You see, up until this point, most people who had come to Christ were Jews. And some of these Jewish believers did not believe that a Gentile could be a true believer in Christ, could be truly saved, unless that person became a Jew as well. They were teaching that Gentile believers had to be circumcised in order to be truly saved. And in doing that, they were adding to the gospel. So if I can explain it like this, if someone comes to me as a Presbyterian minister, if some, or if someone came to one of my fellow elders here in Connor and said, you know, I, I feel this need to be right with God. I know that I need to get things sorted out and I want to be saved. How can I be saved? Well, if I or one of my brother elders turned to that person and said, well, this is great. And in order to be saved, you need to put your trust in Jesus. You need to repent of your sins and, and turn away from sin and turn to Christ and trust that his death gains you salvation. Oh, and, and by the way, as well as that, you need to become a Presbyterian. And here's the form to sign up and join us. Well, that sounds crazy to us. Yes, someone who comes to faith in Christ might well become a Presbyterian. They might well join our church and they, they should join a church and become part of it. But for someone to turn around and say, well, actually, being a Presbyterian is a requirement for salvation, we know that that is crazy and it's wrong. And this is effectively what these Judaizers, as they were knowing, were saying. They were saying to Gentiles, yes, we'd love to see you getting saved, but for you to be truly saved, to be right with God, not only do you need to believe in Christ, you also need to become just like us. You need to become a Jew. And the big, big problem with this 
was that it did not rely on God's grace. It did not rely on Christ's sacrifice alone. Because the, the gospel tells us that the only requirement for salvation is trusting in Christ and in what He has done for us. And there have been similar problems in the past in the church. In fact, it was such a problem it led to the Protestant Reformation because in that period of church history, the church had come to a point where it was no longer preaching the true gospel of relying on Christ alone, trusting in Christ alone. No, it was, you will be saved by faith in Him, but also by these other things. So, the people like Martin Luther, they got back to Scripture, and they looked at books like Romans, and they said, no, that's not what the gospel is about. And they began to challenge the church. So, this council was considering a really, really big, big question. Who is the good news for? Who is the gospel of Jesus Christ for? And the leaders of the church, people like Peter and Paul and Barnabas, they had their eyes open to the truth of how God works in people's lives. They argued strongly that Gentile believers should be accepted as genuine believers because of their trust in Christ without being asked to jump through all kinds of other hoops. Because to ask them to do other things alongside trusting in Christ was to misunderstand what the gospel was all about. And today we thank God, and we genuinely do that. We don't say that lightly. We thank God that the leaders argued their case so well. Look at how they dealt with the Judaizers and this wrong message that they were bringing. They did a couple of things in response. First of all, they testified about how God's Spirit was at work amongst the Gentiles. They told their story, something that is very popular today, but which was going on in the early church, because they had seen for themselves what was going on. So, the Peter in verses 8 and 9 said, I now know what the score is here, that the God who knows the heart showed that He accepted them, that is the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. Paul and Barnabas in verse 12 shared about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. But not only did they testify, not only did they tell their story, they also thought about God's bigger story. And they argued from Scripture because they knew that God had promised this all along. They knew their Bibles. And in particular, James, one of the apostles, understood this, and he quoted what God said in the Old Testament in the book of Amos. Look at verse 16, the message of the Lord, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name. 
says the Lord. And thankfully, there was a good outcome from this meeting. The leaders recognized how God was working amongst Gentile people, and they took steps to make sure that no one would stand in the way of Gentiles coming to Christ and finding salvation in Him. And as you hear all of this today, you think, well, fair enough. But maybe you're asking, why the history lesson? What's this all about? And what's it got to do with me sitting here in Connor 2,000 years later? Well, it actually has a lot to do about you and about me and about us. So as we finish, let me very quickly leave you with some of the implications that this passage has for us. And the first one is that it's a passage that reminds us that it is the Holy Spirit that brings about change in people's lives. It is God's decision as to who comes to Him. It is not ours. So that if we consider those words of Peter to that council again in verses 7 to 9, and he begins it by saying in verse 7, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as He did to us. He, that is God, made no distinction between us and them, for He, God, purified their hearts by faith. So, you might imagine that when Peter was making the argument of seeing people's lives changed, he could have made it all about himself. Well, this is what I was doing, and this is what I was telling them, and this is how they responded to me. But Peter makes it all about God. His emphasis is on the Lord's role. He said, it's God who made a choice. It's God who gave the Spirit. It's God who makes no distinction. It's God who purified their hearts. And so, folks, let's be clear about this. Salvation comes from God. It is His decision, and it is His role. And thankfully, the Lord does not operate on our terms. For we have ideas. I know that I have ideas about who is acceptable and who is unacceptable to God. And because salvation comes from God, because it is His decision and His work, what that means for us today, well, a couple of things. It means don't be complacent. Don't think that you are okay with God simply because of your background or your family or who you are. There needs to be a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And God needs to bring about that change. And it also means don't write off others as being beyond God's love. We think about Jonah in the Old Testament, and we have thought about that story of how Jonah resisted the Lord's call to go and preach the good news in a city called Nineveh. And we make the mistake of thinking that Jonah avoided those people because he was scared of them, but actually he avoided those people because he hated them. He was a bigot. 
And the thing that he was afraid of is that they would repent and find salvation. Thankfully, the Lord does not use the same criteria for judging people as we do, as you do, and as I do. But then the the next big thing that comes out of this passage is the emphasis that it has on God's grace. These Judaizers, these people were trying to force Gentile believers to be circumcised, and it shows that they did not understand God's grace. So, Peter reminded them of what the gospel is all about in verse 11. It's a powerful verse. He says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And you know, we agree with that in principle, but sometimes not in practice. Some of you here today don't believe that God's grace is enough for you. And it means that you've stayed away from Christ, either because on the one hand, you think, I don't need it, or on the other hand, you're thinking, I don't deserve it. And some don't believe that God's grace is good enough for others. And in your heart of hearts, you believe that there are people who could never come to Christ. For some people, that will cause despair because you're thinking about a loved one and you think they're beyond redemption. For some people, it causes resentment. Why would the Lord ever want to have anything to do with those kind of people? And I will never bring the gospel to them. And so, we need to be reminded that it is all about grace just as this council was, as the church was at the time of the Reformation, as we need to remember today. And then, last of all, we can't place extra burdens on people who come to the Lord. So, look in verse 10 at the criticism that Peter had of those who were trying to compel Gentile believers to become Jews. And he says, what's that all about? He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Because these people were not fully trusting God to do the work of salvation in someone's life. They wanted to make Gentiles jump through those other hoops to be sure that they really were people who were right before God. And we can do exactly the same in the church, that while we may preach the gospel of grace, while we may emphasize grace, while we may tell people that it really is all about Jesus and trusting in Him, then we add all kinds of demands to the list. And in our arrogance, what we are effectively saying is this person is only really a Christian if they're just like me or they're just like us. Now, please don't get me wrong. The gospel emphasizes a change that should follow conversion. And how we need that change, how we need that work of God's Holy Spirit 
and how we feel sometimes in showing and reflecting that change. But it is not the changing of our way of life that makes us right before God. Please understand that. It is in faith in Christ alone that we're saved. And then the change should come about as His Holy Spirit works in our life. And today, do you trust that God knows what He is doing? That He's powerful enough to transform lives? And that His gospel is enough? This is such an important chapter of Scripture because it's telling us that God brings about the change by His Holy Spirit. It reminds us that God's grace is right at the heart of the gospel. And I hope today that you, through trusting in Christ alone, have experienced this grace and that you will know the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. How we need His presence, how we need His transforming work, And I hope that you rejoice when others, whatever their background, whatever their background, that you rejoice when others experience that grace too. We're going to sing together.